What's that, Harrison? The cars? Yes, cars. Fast cars. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 238 of the Fun with Cars Formula One podcast for coverage of the French Grand Prix from Le Castellet, France. I'm Robin Warner, and I am once again, and finally once again, joined by the quintessential uh, Frenchman who happens to be from England, Chris Rose. Chris, how are you? <laughs> Slightly insulted by that introduction, I have to say. <laughs> you know, it's so... I, as an American, you have this interesting third-person perspective of the very complicated relationship that France and England has. And uh, it's lovely. But you know, you can't deny the, the food in France is quite lovely. I'm not a big fan of snails or frog's legs myself. Do you, uh, do you partake regularly? <laughs> Not in the most part, but I, I do fancy cream, and there seems to be a heavy dose of it in just about everything. So <laughs> They do a decent cheese, to be fair to them. I will give them that. <laughs> a decent cheese. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, anyway, we are here to cover the eighth round of the Formula One Championship, as well as the tenth round of the IndyCar Series, which I'm sure Chris Roche watched in full and has lots to say about. For full schedules of all four series, please go to funwithcars.com slash schedule. In France, it was Lewis Hamilton that won the race, uh, I would say pretty comfortably so. Uh, Max Verstappen uh, was second in the Red Bull, and Kimi Raikkonen was third in the Ferrari. Fourth place went to... No, that's... Oh, yes, your bottle. Fourth place went to Daniel Ricciardo in the second Red Bull. Fifth place was Ferrari... Uh, fifth place was Sebastian Vettel in the second Ferrari. Um, Kevin Magnussen was sixth, quite good, sixth um, for uh, Haas. And seventh place went to the second Mercedes of Valtteri Bottas. Carlos Sainz was eighth place in the leading Renault, followed immediately by his teammate, uh, Nico Hulkenberg. That's Hulkenberg in the uh, second Renault. Charles Leclerc, who's getting a lot of attention, he scored the final point in tenth for Sauber. It was uh, Romain Grosjean who managed to finish the race uh, in 11th place, however, in the second Haas. And uh, Mr. Van Dorn was 12th in the, the McLaren. Third place, 13th place went to Mr. Erickson. And 14th place went to Brendan Hartley. 15th, I mean, this is just getting ridiculous. Uh, Sergei Sorokin, the leading Williams in 15th. And 16th place, Fernando Alonso. In the second, McLaren. 17th place, uh, Lance Stroll. In the second, Williams. 18th, 19th, and 20th, Sergio Perez, uh, Esteban Ocon, and Pierre Gasly were DNFs. Uh, Perez managed 27 laps. Ocon and Gasly, no laps at all. This was a hectic French Grand Prix, and those were hectic results as a result. Chris, what did you think? Well, it was a return to France after quite a long gap, if you, of course, include exclude uh, Monaco. Um, so uh, Magnicourt was the last track uh, F1 used to go to in uh, France, and it was pretty dull, uh, a circuit, as I recall. And I had high hopes for Port Ricard, but it's a pretty dull circuit. <laughs> well, um, 
Paul Ricard is a is a safe place. There's it a lot of runoff safe. in a lot of places, and I would say that Paul Ricard has the potential to be a wonderful racetrack. And in a way, it kind of was a wonderful race. In a way, yeah. I mean, actually, the I was sitting watching Quali, thinking, "What a Mickey Mouse track!" and trying not to get. Uh, uh, blinded by the myriad of different coloured stripes that they've gone crazy painting everywhere. But the race wasn't half bad. It was much more interesting than the, the previous uh, Canadian Grand Prix. So, yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was all at the first corner, really, wasn't it? We had a, a potentially enticing battle between the two Mercedes drivers on the front row, uh, behind which was uh, Sebastian. Uh, but he clouted Botas at turn one, at ruining both their races. And that kind of handed it to Lewis. Yeah, it was fascinating. There's been a lot of that where Sebastian Vettel caused an accident one way or the other and seems to fare much better than the person that he was in the accident with. Vettel's car was effectively undamaged once he had, I think he needed a front wing change. But once that was done, his car was fine. Whereas Botas had a damaged floor that he had to suffer through the entire Grand Prix, which made it a lot harder for Botas to uh, start working his way through the field than Vettel, who did manage to go from effectively the back of the pack to fifth place. So it was a strong result for Vettel considering the first lap and a very weak result for Botas considering that Mercedes brought a new engine to the French Grand Prix that's proved quite effective. Yeah, transformation, wasn't it? I mean, they really struggled in Montreal having uh, having to use the... the the uh, original engine for its seventh race and was down on power and everyone else introduced their uh, upgrades. Um, but yeah, that new Mercedes motor is clearly putting out some horsepower because uh, Lewis was pretty dominant most of the weekend. I think he was quickest in most of the sessions, if not all of them. Never really looked like being threatened, did he? So, I mean, obviously, you know, there's track differences as well that play a, play a role, uh, but certainly it looks like Mercedes have caught up and, in fact, probably leap from Ferrari again in their horsepower stakes. So... And then, of course, they'll be using this engine for another five five races or so. Uh, I'm not sure when the next Ferrari upgrade's coming, but it's going to sort of be a leapfrog uh, uh, of uh, engine upgrades throughout the season, or at least one or two more. Well, it'll be quite fascinating to see if it's this engine combination in terms of uh, relative performance in Monza, as that will be the most relevant place to see engine power on the grid uh, in, in the Formula One calendar this year. I mean, it's that, that is a power track more so than any. It's effectively a couple of drag strips connected by a couple of corners. So uh, definitely looking forward to seeing that. And, of course, uh, Spa, that's another power-heavy track that will see it. Just that'll be the clearest sense of where Mercedes is relative to the rest of the group. Yeah, absolutely. But poor old Botas, his luck hasn't changed, has it, in 2018? Um, you know, he's he's been pretty consistent, pretty quick uh, ever since um, Australia, where he had a pretty poor Grand Prix. But since then, he's been very competitive. He's outperformed Hamilton on two or three occasions, um, but hasn't managed to get a win yet, uh, despite being in good positions in, in a few different Grand Prix. And, and his luck hasn't changed. I mean, uh, you know, seventh place for his efforts in that car, uh, not a great result, really. But yeah, good to see uh, the Red Bulls actually pushing Lewis quite hard. Uh, certainly Max Verstappen kept him honest. Uh, got within, what, three, four seconds 
with a few laps to go. So Lewis couldn't exactly just hit cruise control. So, you know, the Red Bulls are really there and thereabouts. They're not, they're not on the ultimate pace yet. And I still think Daniel Ricciardo's uh, claims to be the title fight is a little bit, uh, you know, pushing it a bit too far. But they're, they're not a million miles behind. They're certainly closer than they have been for a few seasons, for sure. Well, I don't think it's Daniel that's making those claims. I think people are making them on his behalf. He's just trying to fight as hard as he can for every Grand Prix. But I don't think he honestly believes that he's in the title hunt so much as certain uh, sects of the media just really want him to be. Well, especially if he's going to move to Claren, it's probably the year to, to get the title, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, I, it's been it's been very fascinating. Actually, McLaren's been making news both connected to Formula One and IndyCar. And we'll we'll get to that in a in a couple of moments. I do want to touch a little bit more on the French Grand Prix. It wasn't the most fascinating race we've had on the calendar, but it wasn't the least. And I think considering the expectations, it it surpassed those. Maybe they were relatively low, but the first lap, especially, there was a lot of chaos. As I mean, as you mentioned, there was the Vettel Botas collision. But in addition to that, it, there was uh, I think it was Gasly. And Ocon, and I don't think it was per- – there was a three-car mix-up um, turn three that uh, ended up ruining a couple of races as well. I know Gasly's and Ocon's were among them, and I was sad to see because the Toro Rosso was looking quite competitive in Gasly's hands. Yeah, um, the Honda continues to impress, doesn't it? And, um, you know, certainly Gasly is far more competitive in the Toro Rosso than Hartley for sure, but uh, – but, you know, looking down the results, the Toro also managed to finish ahead of one McLaren and two Williams. So, yeah, even in Hartley's hands. So, not a bad effort. I mean, you know, to see the Williams and McLarens next to each other, it's almost like the glory days of the early 90s. Uh, those two great teams fighting each other. But, <laughs> it's just but, a but, bunch of other cars in front. <laughs> that's right. But for now, it's last place, you know. So, there you go. Good Titanic battle there for who could finish last. What, what was the uh, biggest surprise for you uh, with the... French Grand Prix? I think the biggest surprise was probably... That's a, good, that's a tricky one, Robin. There wasn't too many surprises, <laughs> were there? I mean, <laughs> the cars that you... Th- I mean, it was made interested, really, by, by having two of the top cars f- have to fight through uh, the, the field. And honestly, the, the, the rate, certainly, that Vettel in an undamaged car was able to pass pretty much everybody else other than the top, uh, top three teams. It's just... It just shows you what an extraordinary golf there is uh, in F1 these days. I mean, you know, the Magnussen in uh, the Haas was one minute, 20 seconds behind Lewis. That is an, an enormous amount of time. And, you know, half the field were lapped uh, of, of the finishes that actually uh, completed the race. So um, the, the, the gap keeps widening. And, you know, whereas, you know, normally we see that the field closes up um, with stability in the rules, uh, now it appears to be opening up. So, uh, I mean, Mercedes have a new aero uh, package for this weekend um, in Austria. So, you know, the the race at the top is very tight, and it's you know full on co- constant development battle at the moment, and that may just widen the golf even further. So, you know, whether or not we're going to see any other team get on the podium or come close to a race win this season is probably unlikely, I would suggest. Well, I will tell you there was one thing that surprised me and did so by a fair amount, which was 
uh, Ferrari actually allowed Kimi Raikkonen to pass Sebastian Vettel. The way pit stop strategies were working out, Vettel ended up ahead of Raikkonen uh, for, for a chunk of the middle of the race. But after Raikkonen got his pit stop and Vettel was trying to do an extremely wrong run on the soft tires, which, of course, the soft tires are the hard tires, and uh, Kimi Raikkonen was on newer and I think still soft, but much newer tires, and maybe they were super soft, and he was going more than a second a lap quicker, and Ferrari actually allowed Raikkonen to be ahead of Vettel, which... As obvious as it should have been, Raikkonen was obviously going much quicker. Raikkonen's race was not compromised. I was still surprised <laughs> by that move that they actually let Raikkonen have his own race. Yeah, I know, I know what you mean because at one point I, I thought the same thing that, you know, they're going to try and shuffle the order as per usual. But, I mean, ultimately it was the right decision by Ferrari because Kimi got on the podium. Which obviously, if they'd uh, if they'd messed him around and kept him behind Vettel, then Daniel would have still got the po- the last podium place. But um, yeah, I mean, you should enjoy these final races of Kimi because I don't think he's got long to go, is he? I mean, uh, what are we in? We have got about thirteen, fourteen races left. So, uh, and then I, I suspect poor Mister Raikkonen is done. Well, you know, I don't think I don't. I'm not too concerned about that. Um, but that does bring up. Uh, McLaren has made some news by potentially being eager in snatching up Raikkonen for next year if Ferrari doesn't. So he's still there's still a market for the Finn, even if there may or may not be interest. How so, many cars are McLaren going to run next season? And I mean, are these drives all for F1 or are they for IndyCar and sports car racing too? Because they seem to have a, <laughs> they seem to have a remarkably large amount of driver interest in their cars, considering. A, they're not performing very well, and B, uh, they have you know two pretty good drivers who, you know, I mean, Alonso. I think it's Alonso's decision as to whether or not he he drives a McLaren next year or not. Right? It's, it's, well, uh, it's cool. it's Alonso's decision whether he drives a McLaren or not, and it's also Alonso's decision whether he drives a McLaren in Formula One or a McLaren in IndyCar or not, or, or both, or, or both. Why not? <laughs> yeah, I mean. You know, WEC was willing to move their schedule around. I don't know. Maybe IndyCar would be as well. Although uh, IndyCar is definitely on a strong upswing, and I would like to think that they wouldn't be willing. But uh, the pull of Alonso is stronger than I guess. That's for sure. But let's let's just talk through the number of drivers that have been linked to the McLaren seat, right? So you've got Alonso, who Ricardo. McLaren have already said they'd like to keep. And then yes. you've got his teammate who's been doing a perfectly respectable job. This is uh, Mr. Van Dorn in the other McLaren. Um, Then you've got Lando Norris, who's a McLaren driver in F2, who uh, McLaren recently blocked from allowing another F1 team to sign. Um, I think Hartley was was being considered to be booted out of the Toro Rosso, and they they wanted to put uh, Norris in, in his place, and McLaren blocked that. And it's expected that Norris will get a drive in F1 next season. Uh, you also have Daniel being being linked to the McLaren drive and also yeah. uh, Kimi, as we just discussed. So right. that's an awful lot of drivers for a pretty poor car, actually. I thought that was the mandate from the FIA next year was uh, six-car teams. I thought that was the minimum. <laughs> it, it, did, I, did I misread something? That would be, uh, be good. I don't think I think this was a podcast that I did myself, but you know I interviewed Zach Brown. Zach was in 
Detroit, and I sat down with him for 20 minutes. Oh, good. Uh, Sunday morning. And, uh, oh, uh, Chris, you would have loved it. And, uh, you know, he certainly is motivated. He certainly sounds like an American businessman. And... <laughs> okay. They and have a wonderful track record in Formula I One. I know. By the way. I know they do very much so. And uh, you know, no, but it was interesting. He certainly is not afraid of change. And you know, he's looking at expanding the McLaren brand pretty aggressively. And to think that McLaren will be in Formula One next year is correct. But in addition to that. There is a very, very strong chance that McLaren will be in IndyCar next year as well. And they're also looking at potentially having McLaren branded cars more seriously in sports car racing, be it World Endurance Championship or indeed IMSA. Zach Brown spoke, and which is the American, uh, American sanctioning body for sports cars. Uh, Zach Brown was speaking very positively about IndyCar, very positively about in, uh, IMSA. He was not willing to commit strongly one way or the other and yet there's already been reports that uh scott dixon veteran four-time uh champion in indycar new zealander the kiwi he was reached out to by mclaren for a potential drive next year in indycar so the mclaren name is going to be around uh in more places all those exactly where those places are is not yet to be known but i think announcements will be made very soon and i think a not insignificant part of this is keeping Fernando Alonso in the McLaren uh, team, even if it isn't in Formula One. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting approach, isn't it? Because the other one might be to improve the performance of your F1 team. I mean, you know, call me a bluff old traditionalist, but that <laughs> that's probably what he should be doing as the chief executive officer of McLaren Racing, is making their primary product, which is F1 cars, competitive which is what they said they would be this season they've been you know proven it's been well proven that it wasn't honda that was was the weakest link last year or the last three years i mean i mean we shouldn't we shouldn't gloss over that honda was a disaster for the last three se- seasons and they were better no no no, no. i like your year, first but... sentence much better uh, <laughs> let's stick with your first sentence which was which was i in my opinion quite accurate now was the honda lump perfect no of course not but it blew up every 10 minutes. But, yeah, apart from that, it was wonderful. But, you know, now McLaren has Renault, and the car is faring much the same as it was the second half of last year, I would say. Yeah, no doubt. The cars are turkey this season. Absolutely. And, and so, well, hold on. Let's just – turkeys are uh, not fast, correct? The, the, those are not fast turkeys. They're not fast birds, no. Okay, um, so good. We're, we're on the same page then. Good. So, you know, Zach Brown – in his, what, two, three seasons at McLaren, has singularly failed to bring any significant sponsorship. Are we right? He is the, he was the commercial director. His job was to bring money into the team. He didn't do that. So there, they somehow made him responsible for the whole of the F1 team, uh, including technical operations. Gee, I have no sense at all that he's the right man to sort out the technical mess that's clearly going on at McLaren. And neither is Eric Boulier. So hopefully... They figure at least who should be running the show and, and figuring out what's going wrong with the chassis and the aero and all the other good stuff that will contribute to having a decent McLaren for next season. Well, hang on. Since since you've gone down that path, I have to ask, how much longer 
are we going to give Patty Lowe before I can go full, full rapture on him? I'm, this has been, all right. So let me, let me, we're, we're speaking of engines in the McLaren drivers in the Williams. To me, that's a pretty obvious weak spot, but okay. Given that Lance Stroll put that car on the podium last year, Lance Stroll is hot and cold, but that means sometimes he's hot and, we got a car here that has just been perennially in the back when Sauber is starting to, on a f- somewhat regular basis, collect points. And the Williams is just hanging out in back constantly. Right, the Williams is, is just a horrible car this season. I mean, uh, its fastest lap was four seconds slower than uh, Botas's fastest lap of the race in France. Uh, no doubt it's awful. Um, and a lot of heads have rolled at Williams recently, you may have noticed. Um, I think their lead aerodynamicist and chief designer both left the team. I agree, though. If they've made zero progress with that chassis by the end of the season, you have to question whether or not Lowe is going to be able to continue in his current role. I mean, he may he may be working on the 19 chassis, uh, but you, you can't allow Williams to be that slow and that dire for the whole of this season, surely. You've got to make some headway in progress. Uh, I mean, but you could argue the same same with McLaren. Both teams are suffering the same problem. They both came out with cars that were problem vehicles and they can't seem to develop them and improve their performance relative to the other vehicles. I mean, the, the McLaren's getting slower. They keep adding upgrades and it's getting worse. Um, they're absolutely tumbling down the field. I mean, at the start of the season, they weren't a million miles off Renault. Now they're, Renault seem light years ahead of them. Um, it's shocking that these two great, great teams are just, I mean, they're doing a good impersonation of some really, really, really bad teams from the yesteryear, which, you know, just don't expect to see anymore in Formula One. Are we talking Minardi bad or Arrows bad? I mean, where where are we going here? Yeah, I think we're getting to Minardi levels of ineptitude, aren't we? Four seconds a lap slower than the leading car. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty bad. And the fact that these are two teams with a lot of world championships and a lot of history behind them. And we're having these types of discussions is hard. And I just, Williams is especially gut wrenching. That one's really tough to deal with. And so I need a hard number here. I need to know what race that we can just, you know, throw, start throwing fruit at Patty Lowe and blame him for everything. He's, his title is technical director, is it not? Like, when when do we get to blame him for all the technical issues that Williams is having? Well, I think, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I've given him quite a lot of latitude to this point, but I think uh, I think time's running out for him, for sure. I think, if you, as I said, you should have by now, eight races into the F1 season, been able to identify what the weakness of the car is and start to introduce modifications to start to make it more competitive and they, they singularly have failed to do that in anything they've done i mean they've got the same the same powertrain as the championship leaders right so there's absolutely no excuse on the engine front and yet there's four seconds of pace difference in a, in a mercedes and a william chassis that's just unacceptable i mean they were i think around two seconds last season they were talking about trying to half that to be one second off this season. Well, it's doubled. The gap has doubled. And, you know, if he can't demonstrate a way to improve the car, then why would you entrust him with next year's car, which has to be 
you know, they should be working on that right about now and starting to build up the team on that. So, but who are you going to put, who are you going to put to replace him? Because it's obviously not just one guy, right? I mean, it, the whole organization and obviously key members of the technical team are weak or inept or have lost their way or whatever the case may be. So it's not just replacing Paddy, it's going through the entire engineering team and sorting it out, which obviously takes time. Yeah, I I agree. I, I, but I do, I have to think that some low-hanging fruit is in fact the drivers. And is there a way to get them to have the gumption to throw out one of them, I I would think Sorokin, and put, put Kubica in the car? Do something. I mean... Get a driver in there that you can at least have some faith in to uh, show the true performance of the car and then uh, progress from there. Because you have two things when you have uh, a poor driver lineup. Obviously, you don't get the results. So secondly, I don't think either of them, uh, Sorokin being a rookie and Lance Stroll being so young, I don't think either of them would be capable of developing the car. And the driver's feedback on developing the car is a crucial component of that. Now, this is by no means an excuse for Patty Lowe, but it's certainly exacerbating the problem. I think, you know, when they put Kubica in the car on the Friday, his feedback and his report on the, on the deficiencies of the Williams was the same as the other two. Uh, and he was marginally quicker, I think, in the Friday free practice session he ran than the other driver, which... I don't remember if it was Stroll or Sorokin, but, you know, he's not going to make a difference. You know, whether the car finishes in 18th or 16th is really what he's going to be able to do. I, You know, fundamentally, what I've read is that during cornering, the airflow over the front wheels disrupts the rear floor and it loses downforce. So if there's a fundamental aero problem with that car. What I can't understand is why they can't fix it. You know, what is driving, what is preventing them from changing the front wing or the side pod design or the, the floor design to, to make it less sensitive during cornering? I mean, that's when you should be generating the downforce. That's the whole point, right? To not be able to fix that. that that's not a driver issue. That's a, a fundamental car design issue. And, you know, at the end of the day, in order to fix that, they need engineers and they need money and they need wind tunnel time or uh, CFD time. And Sorokin and Stroll are paying the bills. So you cut them at, at, at your peril, right? You cut them out with a duff car. You get no new sponsors. I think it's uh, it's all going to unravel even quicker than it already is. Yeah. Well, Williams deserves better. You know, I am getting pretty close to starting a uh, fundraising campaign for them. Just, <laughs> let's, let's, just, let's just buy our way to success here at Williams. I mean... Let's just give Williams so much money that Mercedes uh, is willing to sell them their team. Let's just do something. Do you think that Ricardo will be at Red Bull next year? Yes, I do. I think I think what we're seeing is a lot of brinksmanship in terms of negotiating the contract uh, amount. That's all. He, um, you know, for whatever reason, Hamilton hasn't signed his new Mercedes deal. Um, and so I think Ricardo is using that to his advantage in trying to, you know, get a better deal for himself he's not gonna I, there's no way he's going to ferrari and i and i think botas has done a good enough job that most people think he's going to be re-signed for mercedes and there's good harmony in the team so he's not going to leave red bull that you know any other team is going to present him with less of a race winning chance so why would you give that up ultimately you want you want to be paid but you also you know they're all in it for a chance to win races and to win the championship that's what motivates all of them, and particularly Daniel. That's very, very obvious. 
He's not leaving, Rick. Okay, but I think we are leaving the French Grand Prix, unless you have anything to say about it. Um, so, one one curiosity for me was the chicane down the, the Mistral Strait. Uh, do you think it should be in or out for next season? I think it should be out. Let's give the drivers uh, two kilometers to play. You know, let's let's see what happens. The only the only problem with that is that the corner coming off of that second half of the straightaway as it is now, or the one long straightaway, it's a very fast corner. So they'll just be carrying out. It's not like it's a big braking zone, a big passing opportunity. But I don't know. I think that would add a unique component to Paul Ricard that the other tracks wouldn't be able to provide, and I'd love to see it. And the other thing I was thinking about when I was lamenting Paul Ricard's caliber on Saturday was how cool would it be to see a modern Formula One car do the full Le Mans track? How fast do you think a Mercedes or a Ferrari could could lap the full Le Mans circuit? Well, I think it would. I think it would be under three minutes. To be honest with you, I think it'd be epic—a proper long, long distance track again. I think that could be really entertaining. I mean, they obviously they can't close all those public roads too often during the course of the year, and the the mini Le Mans track, what's that? The Bugatti version is yeah, the Bugatti circuit. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty sad. So. You got to go there and do the full track or not at all, I think. But that would be that would be pretty cool, I think, to see those guys run there rather than Magni Core. Do you know what the Do you know what the Bugatti circuit is during the twenty four hours of Le Mans? A car park. It's yeah, it's a parking lot. It's, <laughs> there was a bunch of trucks just hanging out there on the side. It was really funny to. It was kind of amazing to see they because they were kind of wrapped around the different hairpins and things, and it's just like yeah, okay, I guess you park where you can. Yeah, so, uh, no, the only, the only other thing I've got to say before you leave the world of F1 is that, you know, Lewis is back on top by 14 points. So, you know, the Vettel had done a good job to close the gap down uh, over the Monaco and Canadian Grand Prix, and it's gone right back out again with his fifth-place finish. And both of them are, are now putting some decent air between uh, themselves and the chasing group of Ricardo and Botas and company. So it's almost two race wins lead now for Lewis over Daniel. So, so it looks like a two horse race again for this season. And, uh, and it looks like it's going to be tight all the way. Although I do think, I do think powertrain failures are going to come into the mix in later this year. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I think powertrain is already starting to show its potential significance. Uh, you know, even at France that, you know, that was to see how decisive the Ferrari was in Montreal and then next Grand Prix, Mercedes has an upgrade, and all of a sudden it's totally flipped. Yeah, exactly. I I thought it was telling. So it's definitely it's turning into a wonderfully fascinating season for the engineering buffs amongst us. Uh, it's ironic that two engineers are on the podcast right now, but I mean, <laughs> I mean the folks that really enjoy the engineering aspect of the sport. There's a lot for them to be taken by. Alas, we have. Grand Prix coming up very quickly. We have Austria coming up this coming weekend. And then just one week after that, we are in Britain. And uh, I will uh, have a nice carafe of iced tea on the ready in celebration of the British Grand Prix. For now, it is time to move on to IndyCar. And it was a wonderful, wonderful race. Uh, they were uh, IndyCar was, it was their 10th round. It was at Road America. It is my favorite racetrack in the country. It is four miles long. It is quite quick. It has a lot of straightforward corners to go quick, but every single one of them 
immensely difficult to go truly fast. And then you have this wonderful, beautiful 170-plus degree corner called the carousel where the Indy cars are uh, pummeling around there around 135 miles an hour. Then you have the kink, which is flat, um, 175 miles an hour through that. Just a lot of really great spectacle of driving and a lot of wonderful things to see. It was a wonderful race. Joseph Newgarden in the Penske uh, won the race. He led almost every lap, but he was hounded almost the entire time. A lot of the times, less than a second between him and uh, Andretti Autosport driver Ryan hunter Ray, And Scott Dixon, the possible future McLaren IndyCar driver, uh, was in third place. Uh, Takumo Sato had his strong results. It's one of the strongest results he's had since his Indy 500 victory last year. He was fourth. And rookie Robert Wickens was fifth, um, doing a great job. He's the Canadian rookie who is a rookie technically but has a lot of experience, including uh, DTM racing. It was, honestly, Chris, this was probably a race you would have quite enjoyed had you watched it. There, <laughs> there, was, a lot of tense, there was a lot of tense battles even if there weren't a lot of passes. And Road America is one of those places where it Road America, I, I call it the American spa. And it is, in a lot of ways, very similar. The cars really open up. The speeds are impressive. The moves are impressive. And so even uh, the race, just watching the cars go around is enough of a thrill. And then on top of that, IndyCar is delivering great racing. So it was, uh, it was good to watch. It was uh, a wonderful 50, 55 laps. It was great. You are right. I didn't watch the race, but I have actually raced at uh, Road America myself in a shifter car. And it is a fine circuit. I completely agree. I'm not sure I'd call it spa-like, but, but it is a good track. Uh, no, it's, uh, it, I don't call it, it's not spa-like, but it is the American spa. It's, uh, okay. Those, uh, the, those are two different things, I would say. Okay, so that's a bit like some Belgian dish being recreated as a hamburger, is it? It's sort of... <laughs> That's not the direction I thought you were going to go. I I was waiting for, I thought I was waiting for Zach Brown being the American Ron Dennis, but uh, but alas, that's not the case. But anyway, yeah, we we don't need to belabor the IndyCar point. Yes, Harrison's exactly right. There's no more to say there, but we do we do have more to talk about. No, we do. We do. I think there's a protest about discussing IndyCar too much on this podcast right there. Okay. Well, Harrison, do you see the car? Do you see the fast car? Yes, that's right. It is time for trivia. And we're going to do something a little differently here because Chris wasn't able to join for the last couple of podcasts. So we're going to go over the last couple of questions that I had and give the answers to both of them. But we're not going to ask a new question. Yes, exactly. There, that's right, Harrison. Okay, the question from two podcasts ago was, the Indianapolis 500 was part of the Formula One World Championship between 1950 and 1960. In 1961, Formula One came to the U.S. for its own Grand Prix at Watkins Glen. But that was the third U.S. venue. When and where were the first two United States Grand Prix? And here's the hint. The same driver won both events. Now, Chris, you you were like, well, there's too many parts to this question. I'm not even going to bother to guess. <laughs> and uh, probably just as well for you to do. The very first United States Grand Prix was 
1959 at yes it was Harrison was in 1959 at Sebring International Raceway. That is the same Sebring that does the 12 hours of Sebring, the 12 hours of Sebring now, uh, the endurance race. It's a wonderful place. I've raced there, and it's it's just a cool raw track. So that was 1959, and Sterling Moss won that race. And then in 1960, there's a race that no a racetrack that no longer exists in California called Riverside International Raceway, and that was the United States Grand Prix in 1960, and Sterling Moss won that one as well. Well, that's a tricky question because obviously you really have to be quite an anorak to have known the answer, certainly to the second part. Someone might have guessed Sebring, but never heard of that place oh yeah well you know it's uh it's reasonably famous in the america circle of racing lore it was a popular track in its earlier days and now you know it's like a housing development or something so the new question uh more recently was the inside wall of the final chicane of the canadian grand prix in montreal proudly bears the name the wall of champions when and how did it get that name? Now, I have a feeling you might know this one, Chris, but please go, go, feel free to have a guess. Well, you want the year when Schumacher and company all smashed it? Oh, well, I'll, just, I'll, just, I'll just ask the question again. The inside <laughs> wall, the final question, proudly bears the name Wall of Champions. When and how did it get that name? Okay, so I'm going to guess sometime in the mid-90s. So let's go 90. Seven, and uh, it was when Schumacher, amongst many other Formula One luminaries at the time, decided to drive into it. So you, you, uh, as a uh, respectable guess, and you, sir, are close as you are with many of these. It was in 1999, Oof, okay, and crazy. it was Damon Hill, Michael Schumacher, and Jacques Villeneuve crashed into the same wall, which had the slogan at the time: "Bienvenue, uh, oh, I'm gonna bien, bienvenue." Oh, Quebec, or welcome to Quebec. And the wall became ironically known as the Wall of Champions. Yeah, and so I, it's funny, isn't it? Because you don't see many crashes there anymore. So I don't know what it was about the 99 cars, whether they were more tricky to handle through that chicane or they were running uh, less downforce or what was going on. But Or was the track surface slightly different? Maybe, yeah, maybe it exactly. was a little bit more off camber or something, or maybe it was bumpier. Yeah, because I mean, we can all suggest that Villeneuve is not too surprising, but uh, but Schumacher. <laughs> oh, they! I love hearing you say that. Thank you for that. Um, Schumacher well, was a decent peddler. Yeah, you know, he, titles and all. he he did he did a couple things okay, didn't he? Uh, well, the other thing that makes me wonder. The, you know, this was in the day I believe that started in the nineties, where we had the rib tires as opposed to the full-on slicks. And I wondered mm. if that played a role with the Montreal surface to make it harder. I don't know. Well, yeah, I'm sure. I mean, you got less mechanical grip, so it could certainly be a factor. But the cars just seem completely nailed on through there now, don't they? I mean, you don't even... Sometimes they get within a foot or so, or maybe a little bit less, but you never think someone's going to hit the wall. Even when you've, you've got some dicing going into the entry of the chicane and people are offline, they still don't look like they're going to hit the wall. Whereas there are a couple of other corners around the track where they do get a bit uh, more leery. And, I, you know, I wasn't on the podcast for the, uh, for the Canadian Grand Prix, as everyone knows, but I did quite enjoy the full inverted onboard camera ride of the first lap shunt. I just thought that was, that was the highlight of the race <laughs> for me. Well, that was, that was the highlight of the race full stop. Uh, you know, the Montreal, we were talking about expectations. I mean, Montreal's 
expectations are usually quite high, yeah. and that was part of the problem is that they they had higher expectations to hit, and they just failed miserably. And I, I'm I'm really starting to get concerned about these tire choices, um, and uh, Harrison is really starting to get concerned about everything and anything that's on my desk. <laughs> Uh, Harrison. Okay. Um, anyway, thank you guys very much for listening to our predictions. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, our trivia. We will have a new question in short order, but alas, we're just playing a little catch up here. Um, do bear in mind the upcoming race schedule. We have the ninth round of Formula One coming up. It's the Austrian Grand Prix on the 1st of July, which is just a few days away. The 11th round of IndyCar is in, Ohio, in Iowa. That's an oval again. That's the 8th of July, so a week after Formula One. And then the third round of the World Endurance Championship, now that Le Mans is over, the third round is at Silverstone. It's a six-hour event, and that is not until the 19th of August. And then the sixth round of IMSA, this is going to be a good one. Chris, maybe you should watch this one. It is the six hours of Watkins Glen, and that's coming up. That'll be the same day as Formula One in Austria. So maybe we can watch both. You never know. <laughs> something uh, tells me you'll be full on World Cup. I was going to say something tells me you're going to be watching that European soccer. Anyway, thank you for listening. Please take a moment to review us on iTunes or on whatever platform you get our podcast. Please, t- please leave comments on the episode of your choice by going to funwithcars.com. As always, I can be reached at feedback at funwithcars.com. Tweet us at fund underscore with underscore cars and check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash fwcars. Chris, it's been a pleasure, always. Thanks, Robin. I'm Robin Warner. Goodbye. Goodbye.